James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Throughout the summer, we're going to be slowly walking through this book of James, and uh, today we're jumping into it, the very beginning. There's a lot to cover, so let's just jump right in. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, greetings. Now let's just stop there for one second. Uh, let's, let's think about who this is and the occasion that he has given us for writing this book and the occasion that he's uh, saying these words to us today. James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus. That doesn't seem weird or anything. That doesn't seem weird whatsoever. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That doesn't seem weird at all for someone who's writing a book of the Bible, that he's writing a letter, but it does start to seem a little weird when you think about who James is. Because if you know your scripture, if you've studied the book of James before, then you might recognize that James is actually the half-brother of Jesus. He's half-brother because you know the whole virgin birth thing. So only half, but he grew up with Jesus. Now, if I'm writing a book of the Bible and I grew up with Jesus and I was the half-brother of Jesus, I would just start with that. James, half-brother of Jesus, I know him better than all you fools, and I'm also a servant of his. But he doesn't start with that. Can you just think about what it would be like to be the half-brother of Jesus. I mean, you couldn't get away with anything if you were the half-brother of Jesus. You'd get into a fight, Jesus would start flipping tables, he'd make a whip, start hitting you with the whip, your parents walk in, now, James, what did you do? Me, he's the one flipping the tables, he's hitting me with a whip. Come on, he's Jesus. You had to do something that deserved that. Like you couldn't get away with anything. And this was James's life. And as James went on, you might be able to resonate with this because I know that some of you have siblings who think that, the, they're, that they're the third member of the Trinity, but Jesus actually was the third member of the Trinity. And James did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah as they grew into adulthood. Even though he grew up with them, he still did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. At one point, we see in the book of Mark, his family hears about James 
hears about Jesus. And his, his family heard it. This is book, uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 21. And it says, And when his family finally heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. They were ready to throw a conservatorship on him, like giving him the Britney Spears treatment is what they were about to do. They went out to seize him. And then in John chapter 7, it says, For not even his brothers believed him. So what happened? Because James went from someone that none of his family thought that Jesus was actually the Messiah, and now James is here calling himself a servant of Christ. And what we find that actually happened, we learn, is that Jesus himself appeared to James as a resurrected man. When, James, when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he appeared to Paul, 500 other people, and also to James, it says in 1 Corinthians 15. And when Jesus appeared to James, James finally believed what everyone was saying, that Jesus is God. Can you imagine the proof that it would take for one of your siblings to actually convince you that they are the Messiah? Jesus did it. He proved his half-brother, this person that saw him in diapers, potentially, that he was the Messiah. And now, he's so convinced of it, he doesn't even start his letter by saying, James, half-brother of Jesus. He just starts his letter with his primary identity being servant of Jesus. It's pretty amazing when you think about who he is, that he has changed that much, that he's given his life to Jesus. James goes on to spend his entire life following Christ and teaching others to follow Christ. So much so to where James becomes the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, which is like the flagship church of the ancient church, of the first churches. Jerusalem was like the biggest. It was the, the most Jewish of all the churches. And James is the pastor of this prominent, important church. The book of James is a letter, but it's a different kind of letter than we find anywhere else in the New Testament. It's different than any of Paul's letters. Because when Paul wrote letters, what he did is he said, Paul, to the church in Philippi, Paul, to the church in Corinth, Paul, to the church in Ephesus. He's writing to specific churches. Instead, James doesn't write to a specific church. James writes to the dispersion of the 12 tribes. So this is his way of saying, I'm writing this not to a specific church. I'm writing this to all churches. He's a Jewish man, and so he's using the language that's available to him. But basically what he's saying is, every Christian, I want you to hear my words. This is not to a specific church at a specific time, but this is to everyone. As we study this letter, what we're going to find is that the book of James is like New Testament wisdom literature. If you've ever read the Proverbs, sometimes James can feel a little bit like the Proverbs. It can feel like a wisdom literature Book. That means that he has pithy sayings. That means that he's using uh, profound analogies. That means that he loves metaphors. That he's going to jump from topic to topic with some frequency. And it's beautiful. Which has led many people to say that the book of James is their favorite book in the Bible. But not all people. Because it's almost as if we're doing a little series on books of the Bible that Martin Luther hated. Because... Martin Luther hated the book of James. He wanted to cut it out. 
just like he did the book of Esther. He did not like the book of Esther. He does not like the book of James either. And that's largely because Martin Luther's big thing, if you know Martin Luther, was faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone. That was his big thing. And James muddies that up a little bit because he has this whole section on faith and works and how those two work together. And we're going to get to it in a couple of weeks, but it feels on first reading contradictory to what Paul had to say about faith and works. But as you study this, they work together in beautiful accord. And I'm looking forward to exploring that passage in a few weeks with you all. So where does James start? But he starts here, he says greetings, and he dives right in. He doesn't spend much time uh, elaborating that greeting. He, verse two, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So he starts by addressing how Christians face trials. Now, what is a trial? I wanna be really clear with how we define this because he actually uh, defines trials a little bit differently than he does temptations later. So next week, we're going to talk about temptations, which are inward trials, trials where I am desiring the wrong thing. My heart has led me astray in my temptations. But a trial is something that happens outside of me. And so I am being pushed, I'm suffering due to something. Something is attacking me, whether that be poverty or wealth, whether that be extreme heat or extreme suffering, whether that be a death of a friend or some type of disorder that I might carry. All of these things are trials. A, a trial happens to you. A temptation happens in you. Now, sometimes these two overlap. It's a Venn diagram. But for the most part, that is how we can think about these two. And oftentimes, our trials bring temptations. They make life difficult. And so this passage has three things that we learn about trials. First, trials, counterintuitively, are for our good. Trials are ultimately for our good. Second, trials teach us to trust God. And third, trials remind us of what is eternal. Let's dive right in. Number one, trials are ultimately for our good. Verse two, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. A couple of things to draw out here. First, James doesn't say, count it all joy, my brothers, if you face trials, but when you face trials. Trials are inevitable. Life in a broken world means that we will be suffering. James knows that our trials are not going to be easy. If they were easy, they wouldn't be trials. Seems like common sense, but it's something to recognize. If it's easy, it's not actually a trial. And then he tells us to count it all joy. Now, this is obviously counterintuitive. And he's not actually saying, be joyful in all of your trials. He's saying, count it all joy. Consider it joy. No one truly rejoices at a trial. 
That says, that's why he says, count it as joy. To actually say, be joyful, would be sadistic. That's not something that he's telling us, that he's commanding us. Now, why does he tell us that we should count trials as joy? Trials are something that actively hurt us and oftentimes damage our faith. Why can we call those joy? Verse 3 says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Going through a trial is like going to the gym for your faith. When you go to the gym, whether you lift weights or you run on the treadmill, whatever you might do, what you're actually doing at the gym is you're breaking down your muscle fibers. I don't care who you are, you might enjoy exercising, but exercising is not enjoyable. It hurts. Okay, there, there are, I, I enjoy to exercise, but I don't enjoy it while I'm doing it. I'm miserable. It's, it's one of those things, like I go to the gym, after we all work out, I talk to my friends, it's like, man, that was terrible. And we take joy in that, like, how terrible was that? It was really terrible. Ha, huh, that's awesome. That's like kind of how we act with the gym, because we know that the terribleness of going through the workout is actually going to be for our good. It is tearing down those muscle fibers, not so that they stay torn down, but so that they build back stronger. That's what James teaches us. That when our faith experiences time under tension, that that is actually how it grows. And that your faith cannot grow apart from being challenged. Your mind cannot grow apart from being challenged. Your body cannot grow apart from being challenged. So, obviously, it works also with your faith. Your trials are not to destroy your faith, but to help them to grow stronger. No one can have great faith unless it is challenged. Friends, your, your trials are doing something. They're doing something in you. They're doing something in your heart. They are producing in us a steadfastness, an ability to live under the tension of life. They're allowing you, they're giving you the ability to do anything. When I go to the gym, my goal for working out is merely, I want to be able to live my normal life and like throw my kids around like bowling balls. Like that's pretty much all I want to do, and I want to do it into my 60s and keep going. And that is what our trials do to our faith. They allow our faith to be able to handle whatever is coming our way. So that the things that feel heavy today may not feel as heavy in 10, 20 years. Think about the things that were really challenging to you 10 years ago. Many of those things would still be challenging but I oftentimes giggle with just how bad we thought we had it a few years ago. But God has gotten us through each one of those. That's why life always feels kind of hard. And that's also why you should never downplay one of your friend's trials. You know, you should never bring a wisdom tooth story into your friend's trials. You know the wisdom tooth story where one person starts sharing about their wisdom tooth and then everyone around the table has to share about how their wisdom tooth experience was worse than the last person's? That is not how we should handle this with trials, because the reality is, whatever you're going through, it feels hard to you. And sometimes perspective is helpful, but sometimes it's not. 
And we should let people be able to handle the trials of the day according to the amount of faith that they've been given in that moment and allow the Lord to do the work in their hearts. But he doesn't say that steadfastness is the goal. Don't miss what he says. He, he doesn't say that your ability to endure your trials is the goal. No, verse 4, he goes a step farther than that. He says, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So what is the goal of trials but to produce steadfastness? And what does steadfastness produce? Perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. That is the goal. That's what we want. Now, when it says perfect, I want to talk about this word perfect for just a moment, because we as a church don't believe that perfection is possible on this side of, of heaven. All of us are going to be plagued with sin until the day that we meet Jesus. But those other words help us understand what he's meaning in this moment, because he doesn't just say that you may be perfect, but he says that you may be perfect, that you may be complete, lacking in nothing. He wants you to be whole. He wants you to flourish. He is repeating the same idea three times. He's not saying that we will literally become morally perfect, but he's saying that we become more complete, that we become more mature, that he grows us through our trials, that he is making us whole. This is connected to verse 12, the, the last verse that we're going to get to today, but I want to read it now because he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Almost two years ago, I went through a series on the Sermon on the Mount. We went through it together on a Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. And the Sermon on the Mount starts with, bless, with the Beatitudes, these nine blessings that Jesus gives. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Jesus goes on and on, and he tells us all these different ways of being uh, that we have been blessed. Now, this word blessed in English, it's, it has a wide semantic range, which means that it covers a lot of different things. We can mean a lot of different things when we say blessed. Now, as a Southerner, I am, for, I am familiar with this phrase that you guys have probably heard. That's bless your heart, okay? Bless his heart. Now, if you hear that, you might think that someone is giving you a compliment. Do not be fooled, my friends. That is their way of saying, you are a complete idiot. So if a Southerner tells you, bless your heart, that's not, that's not meant to actually bless your heart. That's something else. Our, our word for blessed can mean a lot of different things. In Greek, they actually have different words that are more specific. So there's two Greek words that we translate as blessed. The first Greek word that we translate as, as blessed is eulogio. Eulogio. We, get, we use that word for the word eulogy, which means a good word that we might speak at someone's funeral. So if someone gives a eulogy, it's a good word that they would speak at someone's funeral. And eulogy, eulogio, is a word used in the New Testament as a verb. If you want to bless someone, if you give them a gift, you are eulogio, eulogio whatever, that word, to them. Now, there's a whole other word in the Greek that's used as a noun and not a verb, and it's makarios. Now, with makarios, 
that's, that's a state of being. It's a state of flourishing, and it's a state of wholeness and completeness. It's someone who is blessed. Their life is complete. They are flourishing. They are living as God has designed them to live. That's Macareos. Now, the word that we get to here in James chapter 1, verse 12 is Macareos, complete, flourishing, is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Whole is the man who stays steadfast under trial. It rounds out this idea of what it means to be complete, of what it means to be perfect, of what it means to be mature. Your trials are producing in you a steadfastness that leads not to moral perfection, but to a way of being blessed, a way of being flourishing, a way of being whole. It's producing a spiritual weight within you. Our trials, they feel like they're damaging us, like the heavy weights in the gym. But in the long run, they're making us more solid and less hollow. Our trials are ultimately for our good. And second, our trials teach us to trust God. When you face a trial, one of the purposes of that trial is that, to remove your trust in yourself and to help you to trust God. One of the purposes of a trial is to remove your trust in yourself and help you to trust God. Last week, uh, my wife and I experienced something that many of us are very familiar with at this point, in that my wife woke up at 3 a.m. coughing. Oh, no. I was, like, ready to hit the door. But we were in a hotel room, so I couldn't hit the door. There was nowhere to go. We're all very familiar with what it feels like when someone close to us is starting to have those symptoms. It turned out it was nothing. But in that moment, I stayed up for the next two hours praying to the Lord, trusting in him, saying, I trust you with whatever you give, and whatever you give is good. It was a small trial, but it was one that actually taught me to trust in God and not myself. How do you know if you're trusting in God more than yourself? How do you know if you're trusting in yourself or if you're trusting in God? Let me just ask you, what's your prayer life like? Do you bring things to him? Do you bring your troubles to him? Do you bring your trials to him? Do you believe that he is powerful to deliver you from such trials? Do you believe that he cares about such trials? Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. I love what James teaches here. He said, let him ask God, who gives generously. Do we think of God as being generous? Or do we think of him as being stingy? Do we think of him as being this stingy billionaire? And we live in his servants' quarters, and he's so stingy with us, he just puts single-ply toilet paper in our bathrooms. He doesn't care for us. He's not going to give us anything. We're just lucky to be counted as servants. Oftentimes, we think of God as someone who has the ability to give us anything we want, but refuses to do so. But here, James reminds us, 
that God not only is able to meet our needs, our basic needs, but he is generous with us. Some of you guys need to hear that this morning, that our God is generous. If you believe that, say, my God is generous. One more time. If you believe that, say, my God is generous. That he has been generous with you today. That he cares. That he's not going to leave you alone. He's not stingy, but he's generous. Verse 6, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Now, when James tells us to pray without doubting, I need to just give one PSA here, one, one uh, thing to, to put aside here. He's not talking about intellectual doubting. He's not talking about, I'm not sure about this whole God thing. We welcome that type of doubting here. We would love to talk with you about that. If you're, if you're not sure you're a Christian, that's not who he's talking to. Who is he talking to? He's talking to the dispersion of the 12 tribes. He's talking to Christians. And so he's saying, Christians, ask God without doubting. He's not talking about intellectual doubting for those who aren't Christians. And one of the ways we know that that's what he's talking about is this word that he uses in verse 8. This has been the most fun thing that I have learned this week. It's been really cool. Uh, verse 8, he says, He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways, the person who doubts while he's praying. This word for double-minded man, uh, the, the Greek here is dipsychos. Dipsychos. Now, that's not hard to translate because di means two, and psychos means mind or soul, more likely. So two-souled, this two-souled man. Now, what's interesting about this word, though, and what just kind of blew me away, is that this word only appears one time in the entire Bible. Not only that, this is the first time that this word appears anywhere in ancient literature. James made up a word. He did. He invented this word. This is a word that he pulled out of thin air and said, I'm going to put two words together and make them a new word so that he could better illustrate this point. And what he's describing is a spiritual dissociative identity disorder. Now, dissociative identity disorder, it used to be called multiple personality disorder. Some people have mistakenly called it schizophrenia over the years. It's not schizophrenia, but multiple personality disorder is fine, or dissociative personality disorder. And what it is, they've made hundreds of movies about this topic. Uh, from Me, Myself, and Irene, to Split, to Fight Club, to, sorry, I just gave away the ending, to, um, to the new Disney Plus show, Moon Knight. There's a ton of movies that use dissociative identity disorder because it's an interesting thing. And it is where two personalities live in one body. And sometimes these personalities don't even know what the other person is doing. It's a real disorder. You can look it up on YouTube and see real people who have this disorder. And what James says is that the person who doubts in their prayer is suffering from spiritual dissociative identity disorder. 
that there's one soul that says, I trust God, and that there's a whole nother soul that says, I trust myself and myself alone. And so when you pray to God, your prayers might end up sounding like, God, I need you to come through, with, come through for me on this one. And if you don't come through for me on this one, if you just can't do it, I'm done with you. And do you hear who became the boss and who became the employee in that one? You just fired God. You threatened to fire him. He said, really, you're done with me if I don't come through with you, come through for this. The person with spiritual dissociative identity disorder is unstable in all of his ways. He can't decide if he trusts in God or if he trusts them in himself alone. This person, as opposed to the steadfast, wholehearted, complete follower of Christ who has weathered the trials with trust in God, standing firm, this person, when the trials of life blow at them, they just topple over. They can't withstand the waves crashing upon the sides of the ship. The ship sinks because they don't have faith that God is doing what he wants. Our trials teach us to trust God and trust him alone, that we're not good enough, that nothing can save us in this life, that he is good though. And third, our trials remind us of what's eternal. There's nothing like suffering to remind you of what's eternal, right? There's nothing like suffering to remind you of what's important of what you have that matters. When we suffer, we're reminded that nothing in this life is guaranteed. Nothing. No matter what kind of wealth you accumulate, you cannot take it with you. That's one thing that our suffering teaches us, that in Christ, both rich and poor are on equal footing. In Christ, both rich and poor are on equal footing. This is what Paul, what James is Paul, what James is talking about in verse nine when he says, "Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation." James knows what he's doing when he brings up money, when he's talking about trials. It's very possible that the greatest trials that we face in life have to do with those two things of poverty and wealth. There is a seductive force to finances. There's a seductive force to finances. The rich man never feels like he has enough. We never feel like we have enough. It's like the old John D. Rockefeller thing. When do you have enough money? He says, when I just have a little bit more. If you've ever been in a place where you just weren't sure where your next meal was going to come from, and God comes through for you, you might recognize that your trials, they remind you of what's eternal. And at the same time, there's nothing that makes life easier to depend upon yourself than financial security. Some people here are struggling with financial security and you could be struggling with financial security in two different ways. For those who are very financially secure, 
is it keeping you from a dependence upon God alone? And those of you who are not financially secure, are you wrestling with how you're going to make it, what you're going to do? Are you contriving different ways to get out of your financial insecurity? James says that the rich are like a flower of the grass. They pass away. The sun rises with a scorching heat, something we're going to be familiar with in just a little bit, and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. What's the rich man pursuing? He's already rich. He's, but he just feels the seductive force to have more. There is a deadly pull in our heart for more. More finances, just a little bit more. It's a seductive force that says we're not, we don't have enough. But I have to earn more. I have to get more myself. And if we're not careful, God can become a minor character in our pursuit of more wealth of our pursuit of more comfort and all the things that wealth brings. Don't get me wrong, wealth is not wrong. The scriptures are really clear on that. But James's warning is also very clear that wealth could make this whole thing harder. Wealth gives you the illusion that you are in control of your life. And when it goes away, you recognize quickly that God is in control and only God is in control. And so that's why he's emphasizing this idea that everything fades, that the rich man, he's going to wither, he's going to die just like the poor man. And that we have to trust God in our trials and that our trials are for our ultimate good. Friends, no matter how much money you have, all you need is Christ. Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. When we think of crown, the crown of life, we think about this gem-studded uh, golden thing that sits on our head. But this crown that he's probably referring to here is more like the laurel wreath given to the victors in an athletic contest. It just makes more sense with how he's describing it here. He's describing someone who has trained, who has experienced the trials of life and has come out stronger and better, and then at the end of the contest, they receive a crown to show that they have completed it. Friends, our trials are our training, and one day we will receive the crown of life. That doesn't say you did it all perfect, but says you completed the race. There's one place where I'm very much in support of participation trophies, and it's with the crown of life. Because we receive the crown that we might not necessarily deserve, but yet has been given to us because of the one who did truly complete it. Unlike every other religion, we worship a savior who is not unfamiliar with suffering, we're called to endure, endure trials, but Jesus endured the ultimate trial. As he was being nailed to the cross, he didn't say, do you know who I am? Can I speak to your manager, please? 
But he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. He lived the ultimate complete life. And now as we endure trials, we're reminded that we're made complete in him. And that at the end, we will receive the crown that he deserves, that he won on our behalf. Let's find our completion in him. The great hymn writer John Newton, he wrote, he wrote uh, the hymn Amazing Grace, but he also wrote a hymn uh, called I Ask the Lord, and it summarizes what we've been learning so well. I'm just going to read the entire thing. It's beautiful and difficult. He says, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. "'Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way that as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed, intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart and laid me low. Lord, why is this, I trembling cried, wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ to, from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. That's all we have. And he's given it to us. He's good. Church, that's all I can say is that even in our trials, it's breaking our schemes that we might find all of our hope in him alone. Each week we practice a communion meal that reminds us that he's given us all that we need. That his body was broken for us, that his blood was shed for us, so that we might find our completion in him. Pray with me, church. Uh, Father, we, we need more of you. And sometimes that means less of us. And sometimes that means that we endure suffering but we know that you have a plan and that you love us and that you're abundantly generous to us. And so, God, I, I pray that we might find our all in you. I pray that it will be easier than harder. God, I don't want the hard trials, but whatever you have to make me enjoy you more, I will take it any day, every day. I will take it whatever you have in store. God, we come to you with open hearts saying, God, whatever you want of me so that I can enjoy you more, take it. Wound me if you must because I trust you as a good surgeon, as a doctor who heals my soul. Father, we come to you not in our perfection, but only in Christ's perfection. We come to you in our brokenness 
asking that the broken body of Christ might heal us. Father, I pray for those who are hurting today, experiencing trials of a variety. God, would you speak a word of peace and kindness to them? Help them to find a refuge in you that cannot be found anywhere else because you are so kind and generous. Help us to count in his joy, God.